Good stuff. Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Do you feel the change of weather here a little bit this uh, weekend? Woohoo! 94 degrees. You guys are desert rats, huh? We'll really actually start hitting fall in a couple months. But boy, are we glad to be out of July and August, huh? Woohoo! Good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Galatians. That's where we'll be to the end of the year. This is our Freedom Teaching Series, working our way through the book of Galatians. We'll be looking at chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, Astonished by the Gospel. It's the title of this weekend's message. There is no greater feeling on earth than being free, and nothing will make you free like the gospel. There's no past hurt that can't be healed or addiction that can't be broken or problem that can't be overcome through the gospel. And uh, we talked about it last week. Uh, oftentimes when I ask people, uh, well, what is the gospel? Oftentimes people will define it as uh, something that you must do to be right with God. And most people don't understand the gospel. I think a lot of people that are rejecting the gospel are rejecting not the gospel. They're rejecting something that they believe is the gospel. So the gospel is not... It is not good advice at what you must do to be right with God. That's how oftentimes people define the gospel. The gospel is actually good news. It's the best news you've ever heard or you haven't heard it. It is good news about what, what God has done to make us right with him. In other words, salvation isn't something that you achieve through your own performance. It's something that you receive. It's not something that you, you earn it's not something that you earn, but it's something you embrace by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And the more you understand the gospel, the more you will be astonished by it. If you're not astonished by the gospel, then you don't know the gospel. And so I hope that through this series that you become more and more knowledgeable of the gospel, not just, uh, just something in your head, but it's deep in your heart that ravishes your heart and, and forever changes your life. And as we work through this series, let's begin with a word of prayer before we uh, take a look at this text and unpack these notes. Would you pray with me once again? Father, we are delighted to be here today. We love you. Thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. Open our eyes and ears spiritually through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit so that we can enjoy more deeply the life-liberating and soul-satisfying riches of the gospel of the glory of God through our Savior, Christ Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, <clears throat> amen. Take a look at this. Um, you can see a little bit of the part of as we set up for this read, this reading of our text. The topic is the gospel. It's mentioned six times in these six verses. The tone is anger. Interesting, this is quite different. The anger, the anger is because false teachers have infiltrated these churches that Paul has planted there in this region called Galatia. And uh, these Christians are losing their grip on the gospel. Commentators have, have noticed that there's no word of thanksgiving in the beginning. In fact, there's no word of thanksgiving anywhere in Galatians, which is uncommon. Unlike the Apostle Paul in his writings, usually there's a word of thanksgiving in there, but the, I mean, he cuts to the chase. He opens up a can right from the get-go, and he's going to deal with a major issue, a major problem. And so Paul, using extreme language, believes that knowing and living out the gospel is the most important thing in the universe. In fact, 
as we stated last weekend, when you begin to understand the gospel, you feel like a person who just won a billion-dollar lottery or a, a sweet stakes in some form or fashion. How many have ever kind of envisioned winning kind of a, a billion-dollar lottery? Just show of hands. You, you kind of, you daydream. I mean, we've all, we've all done that. Some of you have already got it all spent, don't you? <laughs> Yeah, I'm right there with you. So we've all daydreamed about that. It's like, wow, what would that be like? Well, the gospel is even greater than that. And I've seen people that have won billion-dollar lotteries or probably not that much. You know what a billion-dollar lottery is. That's a thousand million. Thousand million? So if you're going to daydream, daydream, daydream big. I can't even, can't hardly say it. But daydream big. And uh, so billion-dollar lottery, but that doesn't even come close. That's just a dim hint of what we have in the gospel or you don't understand the gospel. And uh, Paul feels like these people are flushing this billion-dollar lottery ticket right down the toilet rather than cashing it in. That's what he's fearful about. That's why he's coming on so strong. So what we're going to see in our text here is the six tests or characteristics that you're living in the reality of the gospel, that you are astonished by the gospel. Let me begin reading chapter 1, Galatians, verse 6. Remember, we, finished, we looked at, if you didn't get a chance to, to listen to it, go online and listen to it because it kind of sets the, the tone and the pace last weekend as we, we looked at the greeting part, and in that is the gospel. So if you ever get confused about the gospel, go back to this first part, and you see it right there in verses 3, 4, and 5. So he says in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort, or the word also means to pervert, or to reverse would be it also a way, to reverse the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Those are heavy, heavy words. Anathema is what that is. It's, it means eternal condemnation. This is hell. And if you want to know a little bit more of what that is, you can uh, write this down in the column or put it on your notes, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. That's what he's saying. So those are pretty heavy words. Those are hard words. You can go to hell. They will go to hell. They will be damned for all eternity is really what he's saying. So let, the, let the weight of that hit you just for a moment as you think about that, and then, and then just to make sure that we got that, he repeats it. Almost to say, hey, this, I just didn't come up with this. This is what I'm talking about here. This is really important. He says, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Eternal condemnation. Now let's... Uh, you think that he's doing a lot of people pleasing, which a lot of the Judaizers, these false teachers that were infiltrating these churches, thought, oh, you're just being weak on these people. You're preaching a soft gospel. This is what he says in verse 10. For, for am I now seeking the approval of, of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please men or man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I didn't get this from man. This is not man's gospel. Man did not make this up. 
It didn't come to man through speculation. He's going he's to tell you it came by revelation from God. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Now, there are six, six tests, six characteristics that you're living in the reality of the gospel. Here's the first one. The gospel is a power that gets a hold of you. It's a power that gets a hold of you. Verse 6 a, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Circle the two words, if you've got them there in your notes in front of you. Uh, circle those two words, called you, called you. I've got an underline there on your notes, but just circle that. The word grace of Christ is a synonym for the gospel. So he called you in the grace of Christ, the gospel. The word called, the Greek word is keleo, and it, it is more than an invitation, it's more than an invitation, it's, a, it's an intervention. Uh, the way that uh, I can illustrate that is that how many have ever been, uh, if you have kids or grandkids or anytime you've been calling kids to dinner, hey, come to dinner, time for dinner, go in and get cleaned up and come to dinner. You're waiting in the kitchen, waiting in the, wherever you have dinner and you wait and you wait and you wait and then you call again, hey, hey, come to dinner, okay, you hear kind of in the distant, okay, we'll be right there. You wait, you wait, and you wait. And so what do you have to do? That invitation didn't work, so you have to do an intervention. <laughs> and you have to go into the room and drag those little midget demons away from the TV or away from the video games or whatever and get them in there to wash their hands and get ready for dinner. That's what he's talking about here. God's call is an action, it is a word of power. When God said, let there be light, there was light. When Jesus said to the storm, peace be still, it happened. Boom, just like that. So when he's talking about this, there's a power that gets a hold of you, this call, he called you to the gospel. What happens is that when you begin to hear the gospel message, you sense at some point God dealing with you Something from outside doing an intervention on you, there's an internal disruption or disturbance. There's a sense that something is getting a hold of you. And it can happen all of a sudden as it did with Paul on the road to Damascus, Acts 9, or kind of gradual as it did with Peter who denied Christ three times. So it can often happen in either one of those ways, but it's getting a hold of you. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? The power it's a power, the power of God for the salvation, life change of everyone who, who believes. Uh, Hebrews 4.12, uh, it says right here, it says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. I regularly have people come up to me and say, I felt like you were speaking right to me. I felt like it was, it was for me and it was to me. You knew something about me. No, the Bible did, God does, and so he speaks to our hearts. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So he's talking about something supernatural. He says, 
I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. So there's something supernatural that happens within us as he begins to draw us. And as we confess Christ as our Savior, there's a work within us. There's this... uh, it began in me back when I was a kid growing up in church in my early age, uh, when I got baptized at age 10. There was something stirring, and then later on, I, when I reached my high school years, as I began to really investigate the, the validity and the veracity of my Christian faith, oh my goodness, it got a greater hold on me. It was undeniable. And uh, many of you could go back to a time when you begin to, uh, begin to experience that, or a season God began to get a hold of you. How many would say that there have been times in your life that you have certainly felt comfort, the comfort of the Holy Spirit in times of suffering? Yeah, it's a work, it's that power working. It's like, man, what am I gonna do? And you begin to cry out to God and God was there. You, you had a sense of his presence strengthening you, comforting you. How many have ever felt conviction in sin? Woohoo! Yeah, I mean, and you, you walked away and you go, man, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have thought that. I shouldn't have gone there. It's like, what am I doing here? <clears throat> the Holy Spirit is convicting you. He's moving. He's stirring you. Um, or maybe there's a time when you're reading God's word. It happened to me just a few weeks ago. As I was reading God's word, I was, I was feeling a bit down and depressed, and the Holy Spirit spoke to me so clearly through his, through his word. Stuff that I'd read many times before, it just popped off the page and went boom. That sense of his power is like, wow, yes, you are for me. You do love me. You are going to take care of me. You have that reassurance, <clears throat> that confidence, you know, or that, uh, or he compels us that you need to do something. It's like once you've encountered him, you can't keep quiet about him. It's a little bit, and oftentimes I feel like Jeremiah 29 I didn't put that on your notes. You can put it down there. But Jeremiah 29, he says, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. I am weary with holding it in, I, and I cannot. I couldn't keep quiet. I mean, talk to my wife. When I first started dating her, she says, Man, all this guy wants to talk about is God. And I couldn't keep quiet about him. I couldn't keep quiet about him. I, I, I was captivated by him and what he, he had done in my life. And so that's, so that's what begins to happen in your life. So it is a power that gets a hold of you, but it's also a message that, uh, that both humbles and builds you. Verse 7, some, some who want to distort the gospel of Christ... The word distort means to reverse, to change the order. So these false teachers were reversing the gospel. This is what the reverse of the gospel was. What they were saying is that, okay, it's okay that you, you receive Jesus, but you need to add to Jesus these ceremonial laws and plus the ceremonial laws, do these certain things, and then God will accept you. So it's obey, and then God will accept you. Paul is saying it matters what the order is because they're distorting the gospel. That's the reverse of the gospel. And Paul says, no, no, it's not that you obey and are accepted. You are accepted, therefore you obey. And if anybody preaches anything other than that, then it's wrong. And, and it's interesting, and there's, there's various, uh, there's different variations of that. Of course, I've got this handy-dandy little, it's from Rose Publishing, and it lays out 
It's cults and religions. And when you look at all the major religions and cults of our world today, it does kind of a comparison chart. For instance, the big ones in our, in our culture would be the Jehovah Witnesses. And you look at salvation, and they certainly preach something that's contrary to what the Bible teaches. This is what they say. Be baptized as Jehovah Witnesses. Most followers must earn salvation or everlasting life on earth by door-to-door work. Salvation in heaven is limited to 144,000 anointed ones. This number is already reached. Well, you guys are out of luck. <laughs> wow. And then, of course, Mormonism. Uh, Mormonism says resurrected by grace, but saved, exalted to God- Godhood by works, including faithfulness to church leaders, Mormon baptism, tithing, ordination, marriage, secret temple rituals, the eternal life, uh, no eternal life without Mormon membership. Uh, and there's a number of others. It's really quite fascinating as you kind of work through these. Uh, probably another one that's, that's up and coming is uh, Islam. And Islam is uh, humans are basically good but fallible and need uh, guidance. That's an understatement. Uh, the balance between good and bad deeds determines one's destiny. So there's a balance between bad and good deeds. You get, some of you are going to have to start working a little bit harder, Okay. Because right now, by what I can tell, is that uh, the bad is uh, out of balance with the good, okay? I'm kidding. Uh, Allah may tip the balances toward heaven. One should always live with the fear of Allah and judgment day. And then it goes into kind of a comparing between the Sunni and the Shi'i Islam. And so it's fascinating. They have five, the, the Sunni have five pillars. But what you see is it's all works righteousness. Every one of these, other than the gospel of Christianity, is you've got to do these things and then God will accept you. And Christianity is not that. It's no, God accepts you through his son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, you will obey him. So if anybody ever asks you, what's the difference between uh, Christianity and all the major cults and religions of our world today? That's it. That's it. And he says, if anybody preaches anything other than that, let him be accursed. That's pretty heavy. And, and of course, there's different variations within Christendom right here in America. I mean, there are those that say, hey, it's, your, it's the level of your surrender. You've got to surrender or your commitment, your commitment level. In other words, it's by, by your faith, not through your faith. So it's how much faith you have. Well, it still makes it about you. Or more liberal churches would say, well, you just have to be a good person, social justice. As long as you're a good person, it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you're a good person. They'll base it on that works. And then there's, there's the background that I was kind of raised in where it was really about more kind of, it was more of dress and custom. Don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls that do kind of thing. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I mean, I never went to movies, went to dances. Oh, my goodness. I was just wondering, did you, did you guys ever go to any dances? Uh, did you guys ever? Yeah, Lynetta, my cousin there. Oh, once in a while you snuck around, huh? Aloha, yeah. Bring, bring my sister in on that one. Because I know she did. She snuck around behind my mom and dad's back. That's my cousin over there. But... Uh, if they were, she was raised the same way that I was. I mean, we didn't go to dances. We didn't go to movies. And now, like, I, I'm a dancing fool. You would. Uh, <laughs> no. No, you don't want to see me dancing. <laughs> you ever seen a white guy dance? Yeah. It's not pretty. But, uh, but, uh, but that's not the point. It's almost like you don't, you don't meet all these standards and somehow you're in. 
No, you're accepted by God. And the standards might be in some regards, some of them have to do with, uh, you have to have your own personal convictions. There are things specific in the scripture you're going to obey God in. But then there are other things that would be more in that area of personal convictions. And so, but, but it's not works righteousness. It's a grace righteousness. We stand before God completely righteous, not based on our performance, but based on Jesus' performance. So if you build your confidence on your performance, this is what's going to happen, is that you're going to either feel very proud, and you're going to be like the elder brother in the elder brother and younger brother story found in Luke 15, and he beat the heck out of the younger brother, or wanted to, when he came home, and that's, you're going to be holier than thou, self-righteous, or you're going to be more like that younger brother that just feels beat up all the time in despair. You're going to either have uh, pride or despair and a lot of fear in your life because you're building it on your performance. You're not really sure if you've done enough to be accepted. Baloney on that. You are accepted through the performance of Jesus Christ. I mean, when you understand that, you come running into his arms regularly. You know and you experience all that he has for you. And uh, see, the gospel humbles us because we are more sinful. When you look at the cross, it's a reminder it's a monument for us to forever know that we are more sinful than we ever dared to believe. We were so sinful, Jesus had to die for us. There's no other way. And you can't add to that. It's indispensable. That takes care of the pride. So how could we ever feel any better than anybody else? But it also eliminates the, the despair and the fear because not only are we more sinful than we ever dared to believe, but we're more loved than we ever dared to dream. He loved us so much that he wanted to die for us. How could you ever feel inferior if you're living in the reality of his amazing love? He loved you so much he wanted to die for you. He wanted to die for you. He loved you so much he wanted to die for you. So that eliminates both pride and despair or fear. James 1, 8 through 9 says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. That's what he's talking about there. So, okay, so just to make sure that you kind of know this, and I struggle with this as much as you do, but you know you don't know the gospel of grace like you should. Let me go through a list that I kind of made. When success inflates you and failure deflates you. So whatever you build your success on, if your success isn't built in the cross, it'll be built in something else in your performance, whatever that performance might be. It might be your job or or whatever, athleticism, or your marriage, or how your kids turn out, or any number of things. And so, when they're doing well, it will go to your head. When they're not doing so well, it'll go to your heart. And it's because you've misplaced your sense of well-being and your identity. Here's another way that you know. You know that you don't know the gospel of grace like you should when your self-worth is based on what you do versus what Christ has done for you on the cross. Any perfectionist in the house? Any perfectionist? Oh, gee, I lead the pack. Okay, come on, go, come on, raise your hands. Perfectionist? Oh, yeah, see, I thought there was more of you out there. I knew there was more of you out there. I'm right there with you. Any workaholics? Workaholics? Okay. See, that's all driven by the fact that your identity's in your work and in performance as opposed to in what he's done for you. And so, pro procrastinator? Procrastinator? Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, so that's, that's just based on this fact that, it, that you're working for an identity rather than from an identity, from your completeness in Christ. When you feel superior or inferior around any certain types of people. 
You tower or cower when you get a sense that you treat people differently. Hey, that person, they've got a lot of money. Oh, really? It's like, what? So they're like more value. You're going to treat them different than people that don't have that kind of money? I mean, so, so, there, so there's this. So in Christ, there's no pecking order in your mind or heart as we see in our culture. Uh, you don't understand the grace of God. You know you don't know the gospel of grace like you should when you are compelled to share the gospel out of guilt versus overflow of generosity and love. Or when you obey him to get his blessing rather than receive his blessing and then obey him. We talked about that. Now check this out. When your expectation of God's blessing depends on how well you feel you're living the Christian life. I mean, I've had people say, I don't even, I probably shouldn't even show up to church here this weekend because, man, I really blew it big time this last week. What? So it's like based on your performance, huh? Yeah, if I go to church, the, the walls will cave in or the roof will come down on top of me. I've heard that time and time again. So here's another one. When you screw up, so you don't understand grace, when you screw up or sin and you run from him rather than to him. You don't understand grace when past sins that you have committed or have been committed against you harass you with guilt and shame rather than be a joyful reminder that you're a trophy of God's grace. You don't understand the gospel of grace when your moral behavior is motivated, in other words, your good behavior is motivated by fear and or pride rather than a heart smitten by Christ's love. You don't understand God's grace when the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, is more of an exception rather than the rule of your life in spite of people, things, and circumstances. So a power that gets a hold of you, a message that both humbles and builds you, it's a humble confidence, and then a truth that grounds you. Truth that grounds you. Nancy, uh, any, any ladies go to that uh, retreat this last uh, weekend? Woo-hoo! What, was the, what were some of the things that Debbie was saying to you guys? Uh, seriously. seriously. Come on. Well, what's that about? That's, Nancy said, if you say seriously or anything like that, it's just if you guys had a great time, I heard. And Nancy wanted to stay an extra day in Prescott. And uh, so she said, hey, why don't you come up? We'll hang out at St. Michael's Hotel. And so I raced up there as fast as I could because you guys know where St. Michael's Hotel is. It's right there on the corner of Gurley and Whiskey Row. And it's all I can do to keep Nancy out of those bars on Whiskey Row. And so I'm kidding, of course. But uh, hung out there and uh, Scott and Karen were there. And we met them in uh, the little bistro that next morning eating breakfast. We were talking with them. And I was talking to them a little bit about what I was going to be talking about the following week. And they shared with me an interesting story that uh, as it related to their home, that their home got to the point where when they'd flip on certain lights or turn the microwave on, all the lights in the house would flicker, like the whole thing was going to shut down. And, and come to find out that their ground wire uh, was, uh, had kind of disintegrated and they had to get APS to, to get a new ground wire. It wasn't grounded. And uh, those of you that work construction know that it needs to have a good solid ground, a good foundation, ground wire, so that when you turn things on, it works, and I have no idea what I'm talking about right now, but, (laughs) so I'll quit rambling, but the idea, (laughs) But, but but the fact is, is that we need a ground in our life, 
We need to be grounded, the truth that grounds you. It's important to not only know what you believe. We talked about this last week. It is important to not only know what you believe. You guys remember this last week. Not only what you believe, but why you believe what you believe. Neglect the why. The why is the ground. It's the basis for your belief. It's the credibility behind your creed. It's the foundation for your faith. And so, neglect the why and you'll drift from the what. You will find yourself defenseless in suffering or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. It's okay, you you know what you believe, but when you start being questioned about that, do you know why you believe what you believe? Does it have a good solid ground? Otherwise, the lights will flicker, believe me, in your life. You'll be going, oh, what am I gonna do? What is this about? Is this really for real? And you're you're gonna have this these problems. So I guess what I'm asking is, what is our epistemological authority? <laughs> huh? What is, our, what is our straight edge? You can't say something is crooked unless you have a straight edge. So that's all I'm saying is, what is our straight edge? And uh, turn to the person, uh, the people sitting around you and tell them what are, as Christians, what our straight edge is. Real quick, do that. See if you know what that is. It's really easy. It's really easy. Okay. So here we go. Verses 8 and 9. This is what Paul says. He's giving us the straight edge. But even if we, he's talking external, we, he includes himself in there, even if we, external, or an angel from heaven, internal experiences, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, And then he goes, the one we preach to you is the eternal. So it's not external, internal, it's eternal. And then in verses 11 and 12, he says, I received this gospel through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul lays down in the strongest possible language a straight edge for judging all truth claims, whether external from teachers, writers, thinkers, preachers, or internal feelings, sensations, or experience. So is our gospel a true gospel? That's the question. That, that was a question that I, in my high school years, as I graduated high school and then I moved into my college years, I, had to, I started grappling with. Is our gospel the true gospel? How do we know that it is not merely a gospel that we feel is true or we were told that it's true or we think it's true or it sounds to us as, it is, as, it, as if it's true, but a gospel that is true objectively and therefore can save really and eternally, save us really and eternally. How do we know that? And and Paul lays down right here, the standard is the gospel that he and all the other capital A apostles, capital A apostles were those that encountered the resurrected Savior and Lord and were sent by him. And he's among that, that small group of people that encountered the living Christ and was sent by him, that authority. And uh, so that standard is the gospel that he received from Christ and taught, which is found in this letter and throughout the rest of the Bible. So the answer to your question, what is our epistemological authority as Christians? What is our straight edge? The Bible. It's the Bible. And I, I spend a considerable amount of time in the game of life. If you haven't taken the game of life, sign up for it. Because I spend a considerable amount of time just giving you really the validity and the veracity of the scriptures and talk about the, the authority. Oh my goodness. God speaks to us through his word. And so we don't judge the Bible by our modern day thinking and experiences, but we judge our modern day thinking and experiences by the Bible. 
because these dudes encountered the living, resurrected Savior, and then they went on to their deaths to proclaim him. I gave you some verses there. Acts 9 is where Paul encountered Christ. John 1.14, he says, man, we, we saw his glory. For, uh, 2 Peter 1.16 uh, Peter says, these are not cunningly devised fables. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then write this down. This isn't on your notes, but it's Acts 26, 26. This is pretty profound. Acts 26, 26. Paul is uh, in prison for preaching the gospel, and he appeals to King Agrippa, and he gives him the gospel message. He says, come on, King Agrippa, listen to me. You know this is true. You know that this man who claimed to be Christ came from heaven to earth to rescue us, died and resurrected on the third day. King Agrippa, it's historical, it's evidential, it's factual. You can do the research. This was not something that was done in a corner somewhere. He uses that, which is really quite fascinating wasn't in the corner somewhere. There's a lot of people that saw and encountered the resurrected Lord. This isn't just something I'm proclaiming. This is something that other apostles are proclaiming even to their deaths. Now, the reason why I say in a corner somewhere is because every other religion is in a corner somewhere. Muhammad, Islam, he came up with that on his own. There wasn't a bunch of people that encountered the resurrected Savior and then began to write that out. Joseph Smith, through an angel, Moroni, remember what he said? If we or an angel, that's pretty profound, from heaven preach another gospel. Yeah, there's an angel, Moroni preaches another gospel. In the corner, these uh, gold tablets, nobody else, nobody else saw those. It's all by himself, in the corner somewhere. So what I'm saying is that the gospel that we believe in is historical, it is factual, it is evidential. You can do the research, you can look at it. Plenty of evidence, that's why he appeals to King Agrippa. He says, you know, you know this is true. And so this is the point, is that you can reason to a point of probability beyond a reasonable doubt in the validity and the veracity of scripture and the existence of the man Christ Jesus. There's plenty of evidence to tilt the scale in favor of all of that, but it takes commitment to lead to certainty. You can reason to a point of probability, but it takes commitment to lead to certainty. Once you have the evidence, you've got to get on it. You've got to take some steps in that direction. That's why it says in, in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you do what? When you seek me with all of your heart, it also says that God is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him, Hebrews eleven six. But not only are the truth claims of scripture historical, factual, evidential, but also they're self-authenticating. What I mean by that is that scripture bears evidence within itself of its own divine origins. As you study this book, it's a fabulous book, it's an amazing book, I diligently study it week in and week out, day after day, and the more I study it, the more I realize, oh my goodness, this has divine qualities. Self-authenticating basically means it'd be like seeing the sun and knowing that it's light and not dark, or like tasting honey and knowing that it is sweet and not sour. So all I'm saying is this, listen, this is rock solid. If you do what Jesus said there in uh, Matthew 7, 24 through 27, if you hear his words and obey him, you're gonna build a storm-proof life. That your lights aren't gonna flicker, 
during times of suffering or being challenged by a, a smarter skeptic than you because you know it's founded, it's grounded. We have a truth that's grounded, it's solid, it's a solid foundation. Our epistemological authority is God's word. And it talks about the man Christ Jesus. That's why I love the song we sang last weekend. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. I mean, you look at all the other grounds that are established here, sinking sand. It's not going to get them through the storms of life, not to get them before the judgment seat of, of, of Christ. I love this part. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging, unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within what? The veil. What's the veil? The veil was torn from top to bottom. We have access into the throne room of God. You've got God through what Jesus did on the cross. We have him. He's for us and not against us. So the more we realize that, the more we live in the reality of that. Now, often, oftentimes we know it here, but we've got to pray, oh God, make it real here. And it gives you that foundation they need. And then also we know this, it's an identity that liberates you. So it's a power that gets a hold of you, a message that both humbles and builds you, a truth that grounds you, but it's an identity that liberates you. Paul was accused by these false teachers of being soft on people by proclaiming the gospel of grace. But he pretty much, I mean, I mean when you say, well, everybody else that preaches anything other than we're preaching is accursed, that doesn't sound like you're being too soft, okay? And that's what he says, for, I, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare, will prove to be a snare. It's a trap when we have, when we have a fear of man. It's called codependency, it's called people pleasing. So the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So quick uh, public confession here. How many have a problem with uh, people pleasing? Show of hands. Okay, just everybody raise your hand because everybody does, okay? Every one of us have some sort of problem with some people pleasing, whether we want to admit it or not. And, uh, and that's, that's the truth. So let's go through this because I want to be an equal opportunity uh, offender here and make sure that everybody knows that you probably are in some degree or another a people pleaser, and that's what drives our lives sometimes. But this gives us an identity. The gospel gives us an identity that liberates us from people pleasing. So you know that you're a people pleaser when... Uh, when rejection and ridicule from people have greater impact on you than the acceptance and affection of Christ. I mean, there are days that some people will say some really mean things to me, and that will haunt me for a long, long time, longer than what it should, and I, I, the way that I get over it is I come back to his acceptance and affection towards me. Obviously, I'm not believing that as much as I should. Are you overcommitted, and do you have a hard time saying no? People-pleasing. Do you have an inordinate need or desire for your spouse, family, friends to listen to you, love you, respect you, or speak your love language? Remember I said inordinate. It's okay to have kind of a normal desire for that, but if it's inordinate, you can't live without it and you put demands on them that are beyond what they should be. If you're not careful, people can quietly take the place of God in your life. I did that for years in my marriage. Is your low self-esteem a recurring theme for your life? You constantly being, feeling down on yourself and bad about yourself. 
Chances are that you, your life involves or revolves around what others think, needing others to buttress your sense of well-being and identity. You need the, them to fill you up. Are you constantly wondering what other people think of you? Do you cover up your feelings so that others won't realize what you really think or feel? Are you afraid that if others really knew you, they would not like you? Are you always second-guessing decisions, afraid of making mistakes because of a fear of what people might think? Are you easily embarrassed? It's because people's opinions define or rule you. Do you find yourself exaggerating or embellishing the truth to make yourself bigger, stronger, or more successful than what you really are? How many people attend Desert Breeze? Thousands and hundreds of thousands. And I mean, why would, why would anybody embellish the truth? Why would we do that? Because we're not feeling our sense of identity in Christ. Are you too jealous of what others have or envious of what others have achieved or accomplished, regularly comparing and competing with others? Do other people often make you angry or depressed? Are, are they making you crazy? There are certain people in your life that just drive you crazy. If so, they are probably the controlling center of your life. Here's my last one. Do you avoid people? You're at Costco and you go, oh. Where are they now? They're in the aisle number, they're back over there, so just let's go out this way. <laughs> Do you avoid people? If so, even though you might not say that you need people, you are still controlled by them. I mean, isn't a hermit dominated by the fear of man? Okay, so the point is, is that when you begin to realize that the only one in the universe whose opinion counts looks at you and finds you more valuable than all the wealth in the world, oh my goodness, that begins to liberate you an identity that liberates you. This came uh, to mind uh, a few weeks ago as I was kind of struggling through this in my own life that I, and that I, I shared this with a few folks. As God's child, there is never a moment, there is never a moment when you're not an object of God's undivided attention, unconditional affection, or unhindered action. He's working in your life. And when you understand that, it frees you to give up trying to please everyone in your life. I mean, it frees you to have the courage to express what you truly value and joy and love, even if you think the person you're talking to will disagree or disapprove. It frees you to acknowledge it openly when you get something wrong instead of giving in to the temptation to hide it, manage it, or put a positive spin on it as we see all the politicians do regularly. Isn't that true? Yeah. And then it's a cosmic drama that astounds you. Cosmic drama that astounds you. This, this is going to get kind of heavy here just, just for a moment. He says in verses 8 and 9, let him be accursed. Eternal condemnation. Why would he put such harsh language on that? That's pretty heavy due to language. Because we're dealing with heaven and hell. That's what hangs in the balance. Life or death based on your understanding of what Christ has done for you. Jesus said in uh, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Didn't say a way, but I am the way. No other way. No other way. And uh, in fact, we read last week, verse 4, to deliver us from the present evil age. 
John 10, 10, Jesus said, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. Ephesians 6, 4, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Proverbs 24, 11, listen to what it says. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling towards slaughter. Why would he say that? Because that's what's happening. Apart from Christ, people are being led to slaughter. Turn on the news. This place is one crazy place. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's out of control. We are desperate for the gospel. In Jude 23, verse 23, he says, save others by snatching them out of fire. So here's the deal. When you encounter God in the story of Jesus, you get swept up into a story of such cosmic drama and beauty that you are forever changed. And as a Christian, you have been made a character in and a carrier of the great story of redemption through our Savior, Jesus, of cosmic proportions. You begin to realize that there is an unseen battle for the hearts and souls of every human being who walks on the face of this earth, and you can play a part in changing the eternities of men and women around the world. When you get involved in ministry, when you share the gospel of Jesus Christ to family and friends, that's what you're doing. You're helping to rescue them from being led to slaughter. When he says, let them be accursed, that's what he's talking about there. Heaven or hell, life or death, that's what hangs in the balance. I loved being a paramedic with Phoenix Fire for the years that I was there, and, and I loved popping on the big red, going code three, cars are coming to a screeching halt. As we're racing there, you know, walk off with all of our equipment. We can make a difference in people's lives. You know, I took it pretty seriously. Uh, my ability to start IVs and innovate, manage a person's airway, it made a difference in people's lives. Temporarily. For this life. But what we do has implications and ramifications for all eternity. What we do here, your involvement, your generosity, your getting involved makes a difference for all eternity. And, uh, and as I watch the news, and the older that I get, the more I'm convinced at what's gonna change, what will change the human heart, what will heal a wounded soul, what will turn hatred into love, what brings about repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation and ultimately peace. Is it gonna be education? Is it politics? Is it religion? Is it psychology and self-help? No, none of that stuff is, I mean, that's all good. It's all good in some regards, but only the gospel of Jesus Christ. What you begin to realize through this is that you begin to realize more and more that the light of Jesus Christ that you and I bring is the only true and lasting hope the world will ever have. See, that's the gospel. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this, this gospel, that begins to dawn on you. You begin to take it seriously. There's this cosmic drama that astounds you. And of course, this last one here, a relationship that satisfies you. Verse six, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. You can circle those two words, deserting him who called you. The best thing about the gospel the best thing about the gospel coming into your life is that you get him. And to lose the gospel is to lose him. That's what he's talking about here. 
For this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, John 17, 3. Man, once, once you see the invisible hand of God and hear the inaudible voice of God and experience the undeniable presence of God, once you begin to encounter him and you begin to interact with the one by his word, he spoke the world into existence. We have a relationship with him. Oh my goodness, you want to know him. You want to spend time with him. And in fact, has he become that personal to you? Can you say, as the psalmist says in Psalm 34, 8, to taste and see that the Lord is good? Is he somebody that you like spending time with? Is he someone that you can't wait to spend time with? That you get rid of all the distractions in your life so you can spend time with him? Is that how you feel? How about any of these points that I made here? A power that gets a hold of you, a message that, that both humbles and builds you, a truth that, that grounds you, an identity that liberates you, a cosmic drama that astounds you, a relationship that satisfies you. Are any of these true? As it relates to you, then you're beginning to enter into being astonished by the gospel. And it, maybe if they're not true, but maybe you want them to be true, then you're heading in that direction. You're heading in that direction. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. If you're new with us, I'd love the opportunity to, to meet you this morning. And if you'd like to have prayer for any particular reason, we'd love to pray with you right up here, right in the front. So God, thank you. Thank you for the gospel this amazing gospel, even as Frederick Buechner says, we are above all things loved that is the gospel, that is the good news of the gospel, to come together as people who believe that just maybe this gospel is actually true should be to come together like people who have just won the Irish sweepstakes or a billion-dollar lottery. Lord, let the reality of this just astonish us of what we have in you, a power that gets a hold of us, a message that, that both humbles us and builds us up a truth that gives us a solid foundation for times of suffering and, and even against those that would, would be skeptical to what we believe, an identity that liberates us, a cosmic drama that astounds us. Lord, may we be involved in letting people know this gospel message that can bring freedom to our lives and a relationship that satisfies us. Thank you for the satisfaction we find in knowing you and walking with you and experiencing you. And God, we pray these things as we continue through this book study in Galatians. Transform our lives. Let us be just like people who have won a, a billion-dollar lottery. Let us know and experience this gospel message to the core of our being for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.